HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to The Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. My name is Southern Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Gentlemen, welcome back to the studio, the virtual studio still. We're still in the virtual studio all across the country. Yeah, what did you guys do on the uh, the studio break? We had a couple weeks off. I hung out at a house by uh, the Shenandoah River, which was really nice. I went kayaking every day. It was the most vacation-y thing I think I've done in about 10 years <laughs> where the world has opened up to a point where like I'm still basically just working from home now but I can actually you know I'm, I'm fully vaxxed the people in my family who I was staying with were fully vaxxed so we felt comfortable traveling and I was I, I had a moment like the third day in like I arrived and I was like oh my god I'm gonna be here for a week like am I gonna get bored like what happens if I want a, a sandwich at 3 a.m. I didn't see any bodegas for like five miles on the way out here but amazing you know I I I got there and on day three I was like I feel relaxed I was like is this how vacation is for everybody else to, to other people not just like run themselves into the ground on vacation and then just come back utterly exhausted when they have to return to work it was a real it was a real peek behind the curtain at how the other half lives uh, how'd you guys how'd you guys what'd you guys do on your summer vacation <laughs> i mean my summer break from hrn was only that right two two weeks of no episodes uh, just meant maybe i slept an hour extra on wednesdays <laughs> uh, other than that um Quite a busy time, actually. Um, changing the menu uh, at Amore Margo, changing the menu at Ladybird, uh, updating the menu at Etheria. I got a lot on my plate these days. Yeah, literally on your plate and in your glass. That's right. Um, what's going on with Etheria? I mean, like that's how how long has that been open now? What three months or something? Uh, we're pushing into the fourth month, uh, and it's doing very well. Um, we, you know, I think. Uh, we're filling a gap that uh, appeared in the market, you know, um, and, and also a gap that maybe didn't exist at all that we've just created and then filled, right? So it's all tequila and mezcal. I don't even have a bottle of vodka or rum on the bar, right? Nothing else, just tequila and mezcal. Um, and uh, we offer snacks that are really delicious. And of course, 
uh, because of our company ethos they're vegan so vegan mexican fare along with tequila and mezcal cocktails and we're, we're really having a good time awesome yeah and i, I don't want to like kind of bring up some old things but like you know just down the road from you was uh my well uh back in the day and that was like that really filled that void, right? And we used to go to, I mean, you and I went down there all the time. So I'm yeah. glad to see that there's something like that again. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, that was part of uh, the company that I'm involved with. Uh, it, it ran its lease and then the landlord was very uh, non-negotiable. Yes, New Yorky, non-negotiable regarding uh, redoing the menu, even though he continued running a, a tequila and mezcal bar there under our name for a while. Uh, we had to actually uh, go to court with him to get him to stop doing that. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, when, with, with my well being gone for several years now, we just, uh, we just thought that, you know, it would be a great opportunity for us to have another tequila and mezcal location. It's not quite, uh, it's not any, anywhere close to the same as, as my well was. It's a very different vibe, but just somewhere you can go and dig into tequila and mezcal and have fun cocktails and, in a bright, shiny environment. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's doing really well and we're excited about it. Yeah. Last time I saw you was on a trip to Oaxaca. Yeah. Man, that seems so distant. It and you're right. That's the last time we were face to face in a room together. That's just insane. Well, we weren't in a lot of rooms. Well, you know, <laughs> we were mostly outside. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Souther, I think the last time you and I were in a bar proper together was the time that you came to visit me at the the illegal pop up. Uh, speaking of mezcal in the East Village, which is also sadly no mas, but yeah, it all it all comes back to agave, man. It really does. Yeah. Um, if you want yeah. me to show up and teach you how to do that dice gambling game that we did at Ateria, do like a little, <laughs> you know, do, do some staff education. My uh, my calendar is flexible. That's all I'm going to say. All right, we'll get you in there. Uh, Beautiful. Bring you bring you in on a Tuesday. <laughs> we'll do a Taco Tuesday. We'll play some dice. Um, and Damon, what did you get into on your hiatus from the show? I was working probably the hardest I've ever worked. Um, shooting a commercial kind of documentary. Um, film with uh with harley davidson i'm sure some of our listeners know that uh a big motorcycle guy and southern you also at a uh, time in your life were a big harley guy and yep. uh and yeah so i get to uh represent the united states there's a uh, like six-part series globally that we're doing and it was me and my my friend Corey seymour um we rode some new Harley Davidson models all around the desert. Now it sounds cooler than it was because, like, at one point we took the temperature of the ground and, and when we were riding through these dry lake beds, and and I'd never ridden a, a Harley Davidson off road, so that was kind of crazy. But um, uh, the the ambient temperature was 130, and what? the uh, yeah the and the crazy Holy thing was is like the jacket that they bought for me to wear in the shoot wasn't it looks really cool it's a cool cool jacket <laughs> but uh yeah it's not it wasn't ventilated um so i mean you're already telling me it's 130 degree ambient temperature and you're in a jacket so there's yeah, already so, some there's already some discrepancies with this story right here well it's riding gear you yeah, know of course. i get you but but um yeah but yeah we opened my jacket and took the temperature and it was 150 degrees 155 <laughs> actually Holy crap. I've never been so hot for so long in my life. And, you know, like we're shooting over a few days. So, like, I had to wear the same clothes for continuity. <laughs> and so it was just like, <laughs> it was pretty miserable. Do uh, they have like laundry stations in the desert? No, just like, no, it was just fun. But, <laughs> but it was cool because, you know, it was kind of a, a journalist 
inspired journalism inspired documentary. So we got to interview a lot of amazing people and kind of go out into the, you know, the depths of the desert and meet all these people who just kind of like, you know, decided to go on their own path and, you know, kind of do, do the desert, you know? And so it was pretty amazing. And, uh, yes, after we rode, there was lots of mezcal. So I, I like, lots and lots for me because I, I was like anger drinking at that point. <laughs> right. <laughs> but hey, Chicks, I like, I actually drink more water than like, I'm not getting too many, like, uh, kind of personal details. <laughs> I, uh, I had one of the PAs on the shoot keep track of how much water I was drinking because I just wanted to know because I was drinking a ton. And uh, the first day of shooting, I drank over five gallons of water. What? And didn't have to take any breaks, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all coming out through the skin. Yeah, Incredible. it was insane. But yeah, it was overall great experience, and I uh, can't wait for you guys to see it. I mean, I can't wait to see it either. Uh, it sounds like... Uh... Hard work, but uh, the rewards will be great, I'm certain. Can't um, wait to see if they airbrush out all that sweat or if they just kind of let you be in your natural yeah, environment. Yeah, they're going to – unfortunately, they're probably just going to – they probably – I think they wanted that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got it, it sounds Yeah, they like. got it. <laughs> uh, Greg, who we got in the virtual studio with us today? In the virtual st- – I know. I was trying to think of like how do I segue from that to who we have? There is no, there is no overlap on the Venn diagram between the story about Damon not peeing for three days and our next guest. So let's just bring her in, shall we? Yeah. Uh, today we have Lauren Moat from Bittered Sling. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm great, thanks. I was wondering that myself. I'm like, ah, speaking of sweat, let's bring Lauren Moat into the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, other asked. You know, yeah. uh, I did. Uh, you know, it's a, it's catch as catch can with Damon sometimes. Um, <laughs> so, Lauren, you're coming to us uh, all the way from Amsterdam today. Uh, that's not what I expected when when you signed in on the on the show today. How long have you been over there? Uh, so I moved here in December 2019, my husband, Jonathan and I. And originally we were living in Vancouver, B.C. So right. Uh, yeah. Big commute. Big move. But amazing good timing, move. too, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Two months before lockdown, I was like, oh, okay, let's get used to this. Like, really amazing city. Everybody seems so jolly, so happy, riding around on their bikes all the time. Doesn't appear to be raining. And then, of course, COVID happened, and then it seemed like it started raining the exact same day as well. And then it just didn't stop for 18 months. So, Oh, my God. Yeah, That's... but it's 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 been an amazing place to uh, to be held up, you know, if you have to if you have to say it like that. Uh, right. Well, you know, uh, I don't know much of what's been going on there. I only obviously have to deal with the experience that I've had here in, in uh, the United States, and it's not been the greatest, obviously. Um, but I'm happy to know that everything is safe and kosher over there. Um, what took you from Vancouver all the way to Amsterdam? Well, Amsterdam, I, I think everyone at some point, and maybe I'm not going to generalize and say everybody at some point wants to move to Europe, but I, I would say the vast majority of people sort of want the opportunity to experience living abroad and perhaps living in Europe is uh, is a place that everyone longs to, to visit and stay for a long period of time. Uh, definitely for me, that's the case. And my, my mom is British. Uh, all of my, our family is European, but lived in Canada for uh, several generations. So it's, uh, it wasn't really part of uh, my immediate life anymore as a Canadian, but I was commuting to Amsterdam specifically uh, for work since 2017, every couple of months. 
And it seemed that if I could, you know, make use of my British passport before Brexit made it feel like my British passport wasn't as useful as it would have been prior mm-hmm. to 2019. Um, it was it was just a really good moment. All the stars aligned. Jonathan said yes. That was the main thing. It took two years to convince him that moving uh, that leaving Vancouver was the right choice. And all of a sudden, we're here now, and uh, and it's great. But it is raining. I'm looking outside, and it's it's raining. So. <laughs> That's it's romanticized over there, though, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. people are still riding riding their bikes in the rain with a face shield, you know. Sure, and and uh, you know, for you anyway, uh, I don't know about Jonathan, but for you, it's no you're no stranger to traveling the world. You 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 won uh, world class Canada, uh, and then of course you've competed in the the global world class finals in South Africa in 2015, right? Yeah. Um, so you've been traveling the world uh, with your career for for years. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it it actually reminds me when I was, you know, when I was 18, I said to my mom, I am going to move to London. She says, you can't yet. You can't, you're just living your life. Now I'm turning 40 next year and it took me a long time to actually leave Canada, but I, I also wanted to travel and backpack. I wanted, I wanted to do so much of this travel when I was in my, in my twenties, but I couldn't because I just kept moving from school to job, to job, to job. And then all of a sudden, I think we've all experienced it. You wake up and you're like, Oh, I'm 30. I'm in my mid thirties now. I, I actually maybe want to start experiencing some of these other things. So I did start traveling a bit in 2012 and with the exception, you know, being Canadian and as you guys know, being, being from the U S there's a lot of cross-border travel, you know, Canada and the U S we're, we're sort of going back and forth all the time. Sure. Um, but, uh, in terms of big international trips where you really felt removed, uh, from where you lived, I didn't start doing that until 2013. And once I sort of got the bug, um, I, I needed to be able to incorporate work into that because it's, uh, it's quite costly and I really don't like staying in hostels if I'm mm-hmm. honest or camping. Both of those <laughs> things are true. So, um, yeah, so I think, uh, being able to work that into, into my career was really important. And I, I, um, you know, luckily was able to, to drive that over the next few years. And I think now I've traveled to about 57 countries, I think in nice. most, and most of those countries I visited in, I would say in a two year period from 2017 to 2019, which was aggressive to say, to say the least. And, and just in time too. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, I mean, I got, I got to ask, what was the, what was the highlight of that? What do you say? 27 countries? 57. 57. 57. 57. Oh, 57. God. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, 57. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, okay. So for, for anyone that has a, a partner or someone that you are sharing your life with, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of a challenging pill to swallow. You say, yes. So I'm, I'm just going to go away for a work trip. Great. When will we be back in a year? (laughs) Um, But it was, uh, it was more that, that I would be on the road out of the 365 days of the year. I was on the road for about 300 days. And I'm certain that that would have continued had, you know, uh, the pandemic not happened and our, our travel schedules were, were interrupted. Um, even trying to be more selective with, you know, where we were going and what we were doing for work to really make sure that it was impactful, not wasteful. Um, it, it was still an aggressive travel schedule. Uh, some, some locations I had been to, you know, three or four times in one year, like Brazil, as an example, 
um, and other other places where they were so incredibly far away, but I would only be there for less than 24 hours. Um, so somewhere like maybe Hong Kong as an example, which is, you know, quite a far time distance uh, away, you know, time zone wise from Vancouver as well, being on the West Coast, I think it's um, uh, forward by 16 hours. And so being, or 13 hours. So being in Hong Kong, getting off the plane from Vancouver after a very long flight uh, and then doing the work that I was doing and then leaving in less than 24 hours to go to the next stop. It didn't really give you a lot of time to acclimatize, but it made for amazing stories when you start to chronicle airport food and who's <laughs> the best dumplings inside the Hong Kong airport. And then you tell all your friends, like I know everything there is to know about Hong Kong airport dumplings. Um <laughs> Yeah, and then some. And then some trips obviously would be uh, a little bit longer, and I'd be able to bookend like a couple of days of personal time at the end of that. So some felt like brochures, and and other trips felt like postcards you forgot to mail. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I've had several of those myself. Uh, most notably, I went to all the way from uh, here to New Zealand for, I was there for four days. I don't know if you know, that's a, quite a distance oh. to travel just to be there for yeah. four days on the ground. It takes you four uh, days to get used to it. Yeah. Didn't, didn't, uh, didn't get even close to getting used to it. Travel like that is uncomfortable, but you know, uh, from, from the outside view, everyone's like, Oh my God, you got to go to New Zealand. I'm like, did I, did I really, <laughs> I got off the plane. I went into the bar that I was there for. I, I did the thing for four days and I left. I don't really remember much. Oh. Um, but, you know, wouldn't undo it at the same time. But, yes, like a postcard that I forgot to mail. Yeah. That's a great way to put it because the memories are so minimal. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we're st sticking with your past a little bit. We'll get into your current day soon. But um, the iconic cocktail, the Martini, a documentary that you starred in uh, back in 2017. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was uh, – actually, I think it was 2016, and it was it was a – it was just a really cool opportunity to talk about, I think, a cocktail that everyone, there isn't one right answer to the question of what is the origin story of the martini. And I think that's what makes, you know, bartenders great storytellers is that you give sort of a glimpse of, you know, some spotty history of what it could be. And then you sort of pick the story that you like the best and you sort of make it your own as a way to talk about, well, my perfect, you know, origin story of the martini is because I love this story the best. And uh, it was myself and 11 other bartenders. And I think you can actually rent this now. It, I mean, it took four years to, to really a go on. Blockbuster? Where do I on pick Am it up? Yeah, Amazon Prime. Yeah. No, what was the mail-in service? Columbia House. They will yes. mail it to you in yeah, yeah. seven weeks. For and one it will cent. be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Only available on Laserdisc. <laughs> yeah, on beta. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think it's on Amazon Prime now. And I... I I do feel like the, you know, the, the actual cocktail itself is timeless, but then the, the documentary itself almost felt like it was timeless in a way talking about something like the martini. Um, but even just working with, uh, you know, I, I, I traveled quite a lot with Dale DeGroff that year for, um, for a couple of things on World Class and on Kettle One. And uh, of course, the martini movie was, uh, was part of that. And at one point in the, it's probably my favorite line from the entire documentary and and people were getting crazy about vermouth that was my dale voice just then okay so people were getting crazy about vermouth and at one point you would have a bartender call another bartender in another bar and they would ask on the phone did you open the bottle can you put it close to the phone because that's how much vermouth goes in my martini it was just right. about like did you crack the top <laughs> yeah perfect uh that's dry everybody dry folks you know yeah. 
Uh, by the way, your your DeGroff imitation is spot on. I thought he was there with you in, in Amsterdam. Um, you know, the thing is, I always said about the martini is that it's kind of like, as far as origin stories go, it it's kind of like some of my favorite friends. Like, I don't really remember meeting them. They just, like one day, they just appeared in my life and my life is better for it. And I kind of feel that way about the martini. It's like, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to have like, this romantic story about it. Like, you know, most, most stories like that are fabricated these days anyway. And she's like, you know, it's, it's kind of more about the pursuit than actually finding the real story. Right. Right. hundred percent. And how you yeah. feel when you're drinking it and what you're yeah. wearing track pants. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Use a mug. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, I think, yeah, that's true of origin stories in general. And I also think um, the martini specifically for me as a former chef slash cook whatever i was the martinis like eggs everybody mm-hmm. has their very specific way they like their eggs mm-hmm. you know um and and i think that that's perfectly okay as long as uh, you're getting what you want right? that's In a wicked end. analogy it's a good analogy you know i, I think you know, I, I don't know if you know, Lauren, what a Waffle House is. It's, a, it's an American. Sure do. The, yeah, <laughs> so my very first cooking job, I was still in high school uh, and I worked the overnight shift. They're open 24 mm-hmm. hours a day. They never close. In fact, they don't even have locks on the doors because um, they literally never close. Um, <laughs> and I was the overnight. So I had to I'd go in at 9 p.m. till 7 a.m. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, nine to seven, and do uh, I catch the end of the dinner rush, the beginning of the uh, the after bar rush, and the beginning of the breakfast rush, and I, you know, so I I know eggs, uh, but you know the particularities that people have about eggs, I have always been like, man, this is, you know, when I got behind the bar, I was like, man, this just makes me think of eggs. <laughs> so what? So this this whole egg conversation, because I I totally agree. What's everyone's egg preference? Like if someone, if if all of us, I hope we do get to go to what? Maybe it's not Waffle House. Maybe we'll go somewhere else, um, or we could go to Waffle House. I mean, Waffle House rules. Denny's. I mean, like it's amazing. Um, and, and here's and here's the crazy thing about Waffle House is they're actually. I think I learned this recently. I believe FEMA keeps a Waffle House index. Uh, oh. How soon after a national disaster the Waffle House in the area starts to reopen? Because Waffle House is like insane about the fact that, as you were saying, so their their Waffle never Houses close. never close, never and they have they have teams. They're called jumpers that go yeah. into like disaster zones specifically to reopen the Waffle House. That's because that's kind of part of their whole brand is they're like yeah. we want to be like there for the community and yeah, like yeah. a place where yeah. people can gather. But it's just it's insane that like there is a a government disaster agency. I believe I may be telephoning the story that I heard from someone who works in the government it a few weeks ago sound, uh, over a lot of beers. Yeah. But I believe there is actually a Waffle House index kept by FEMA to be like, okay, how soon after this disaster did the local Waffle House reopen? It doesn't. That, that doesn't sound odd or shocking to me at all. I, that, I feel like <laughs> I feel like they'd be right on board with that. How do I like my eggs? I like my eggs up, um, but I also have a very staunch rule about eggs. There must be no brown on my eggs. Ah. Okay. What? No, even no like brown, a like a little bit like of the corners. The, no, the hate that. Hate that. Oh. That is an improperly cooked egg, in my opinion. On an omelet, on an egg, and no, wow. no, no browning. I you want brown see. on my steak, not on my egg. Different protein. Mmm. What about everybody else? How does ever? I love this, like the egg judgment. You know. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of opinions about eggs. Mm. I'm more of a fish egg uh, kind of caviar guy. Personally. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well played. Do they have Just that at Waffle thing. House? Is that on like the special menu? It's, uh, yeah, it's on the secret yeah, menu. How do you like your eggs? From the sea. Yeah. Yeah. Order, order scrambled cheese caviar. Yeah. <laughs> no, but for real, uh, the eggs for me, it's like Austin, Texas breakfast tacos. Just like scrambled with a bunch of cheese, and yeah, I don't even like bacon. But in a, like a, a true like Texas mm. breakfast taco, I'm, like I'm a huevos ranchero kind of kind of thing. Something like that. It's gotta be wrapped in uh, aluminum foil. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps uh, helping you too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, guys, you, did you see the uh, the fun news that came out on Monday from Tales of the Cocktail? From Tales of the Cocktail, that fun news. Yeah, yeah absolutely, buddy. You're nominated thrice. Wow. Thrice. Yeah, three three times. So on paper, I have a 30% chance <clears throat> of winning the best broadcast podcast or online series. But in actuality, it's probably a 0% chance because Dave Wondrich is also nominated. <laughs> yeah, you go up against Wondrich, your best hope is second place. I, I, will, I will be happy to play second after that guy. As long uh, as he invites me to the formal dinner he does on all of the plates that he's won, I will accept that as yeah. a consolation prize. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> this guy's got to buy a new hutch. But I mean, hey, we got this is what our fourth, fifth year uh, up for this award. Always a bridesmaid. Uh, Get the hope chest going again, guys. Yeah. Listen, I'm okay with it. Like, uh, you know, I think people hard pressed to remember who won four years ago, but uh, we're in it every year, so we're reminding everybody year over year that we're in the game. Yeah, That's like true. the uh, the pre the pre Revenant DiCaprio. One of these days, we're gonna fight that bear and come out on top, guys. <laughs> also, also four years ago, it was it was bartender at large. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was gonna say, yeah, pe- people do remember. We remember. We're uh, the keepers yeah, of the memory. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm excited though. I'm excited that that Tails is doing this um, sort of you know more global thing where they're conscious of the fact that people are not traveling for various concerns and reasons and they are moving more out into the world and and kind of doing the hybrid model we've been talking about a lot on the show where it's in person but it's also online and it's much more inclusive that way i think that's pretty badass yeah exactly i mean it's it was kind of inevitable anyway but now that technology we've kind of forced into it uh Turns out not so bad, <laughs> you know. Right, there's plenty of silver linings to see there, yeah. and I think with the you know the easy access to the internet, um, people are going to be able to participate in many ways. And you know, Diageo Bar Academy is going to be one of the marquee sponsors of the 2021 Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, our friends at Diageo Bar Academy will be all around us there as well. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, talk about the, the the people that can do the hybrid of like online in person. Like one of the things that I like about their model is that. You know, you don't need to, it's a class that you don't need to show up for at a specific time. Like if you get home yeah. at 4 a.m. and you're feeling energized for whatever reason, like you can just log on and do a class. It's great. And most people do get home at 4 a.m. in this biz, you know, so it's it's really great that you don't have to have that strict curriculum. And the great thing about Diageo Bar Academy is it's free. It's, it's a great online resource for hospitality professionals and it offers a lot of resources for bartenders and professionals at any level, really. Yeah, they're, they're even wide open to having consumers in there. And I think you mentioned the best part of it, Damon, is that it's free. The barrier for entry is as low as it can possibly be. As long as you have access to the internet, you're in the game. Just log in and, and, and get going. 
Yeah. Where can they log in, Southern? Uh, well, they can log in at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Uh, it's completely free. My, I highly recommend you sign up for the newsletter. Uh, it's not obtrusive. It comes once a week, uh, and it tells you uh, what's going on, and it drives you towards the information that, that's more pertinent and more fresh uh, because this website has been around for a decade, uh, so there's plenty of stuff to mine through, but the newsletter will keep you up to date on what's, uh, what's fresh and new. I love it. I love I love the master classes. I love the, the the quizzes that you can take if you want to feel sharp. Uh, the 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 tools that they actually have to like boost sales because it's practical. It's not just you know the it's not just the artsy stuff. It's the meat and potatoes too of how do you yeah. actually get these drinks into people's hands. It's a, it's it's a great comprehensive tool. Yeah, the, the calculators for costing out drinks. I mean, like that's that alone is huge, right? No yeah. more no more doing it on the back of coasters after yeah, close. Exactly. Those days are over. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of valuable tools in there. Uh, well, guys, I wish us the best of luck, especially you, Greg. Three opportunities to take a Spirited Award, uh, and I hope uh, I hope we get to do it together, guys. Absolutely. I would love to. Well, one more time, everybody. That's diageobaracademy.com. Check it out today. Well, so now that you're over in Amsterdam, um, can we talk a little bit about what does that mean for um, your bidders line? Uh, you still producing? You producing from over there? You just overseeing? How does that work? Yeah, we um, so we started Bittered Sling in 2010 in Vancouver in uh, a space, a commercial space that we rented from uh, one of Jonathan's chef buddies. It was above an Italian restaurant called Campagnolo, and we had this excise locked up locker, like a Canadian tire locker, I guess what you'd have in the, like from Rona or something else, like a hardware store. And in it, we had all of our mason jars of bitters that we were making like one liter at a time. And we'd have to go in between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. to make all the bitters, do all the production, hand peel, all the the citrus, anything that we were using, um, we had to do during that that four hour window before the cooks would come in. And Mm. after they left at night. So it was, it was kind of insane for the first, uh, for the first two years. And then in 2012, uh, our production obviously got much bigger. We, um, the reason why I say obviously got much bigger is because we were not in the upstairs of this (laughs) commercial kitchen anymore. And, uh, we, we had moved, um, our, uh, production facility to the Okanagan Valley, which is almost like comparable to, I guess the Napa Valley. And, so it's about five hour drive from Vancouver. You have to drive through the mountains to get there. And uh, we were working with um, with a, a small distillery out there that was producing craft spirits from, well, we didn't call it ugly fruit back then. It was just called discarded fruit. It was stuff that people didn't use like apples, sure. pears, grapes. And we would use um, that as sort of a secondary recycling program for the fruit. And from there, we just we just stayed out there. It also felt really connected to, I suppose, the brand story of Bitter Sling that were chef and bartender own and developed Bitter's line that um, only focuses on whole botanicals and using you know whole fruits or whole non-GMO Canadian grains as as the base. And so we sort of just stuck with that. And the partners that we were working with out there, eventually, they were making the bitters better than we were because as we would start to release things like we don't want to peel the fruit anymore and they're like great because we want to peel it and they started to take like full control 
of our production. And then we would obviously quality control. We have our preferred suppliers and sometimes secondary and tertiary suppliers for all of our botanicals. And so the, the process to get, I suppose, from 2012 to where we are now, it didn't happen overnight, um, but it happened over, you know, a, a seven or eight year period to, to just really streamline and make sure that bittered sling uh, could be produced in, you know, in larger quantities and still have the same quality control and the same attention to supporting our suppliers and farmers that we work with, other community initiatives that we support. So moving to Amsterdam without without a doubt was something that we could do because our partners are still the ones that are manufacturing, but it's not licensed. So Jonathan and I are still the ones still physically placing the orders for, you know, products that we are manufacturing. We are still doing all the, the, the quality control. We have amazing uh, distributors and partners that we work with all across Canada. So it really, and our bitter babes, of course, which are the ambassadors that, uh, that all work in bars as day jobs. And then they help us out a few hours a week doing, doing different things. So it's been, uh, it's, it's been amazing to see how you can sort of move your life around. And as an entrepreneur, it doesn't mean that your business necessarily has to close and move with you. I think, you know, we can be more flexible on how we see entrepreneurial, you know, behavior going into the future. And so I'm just really happy that it worked out. We have, um, we just picked up a new uh, distributor here in in Europe, in Italy, and um, obviously uh, the Netherlands and, and France we're doing work with, the UK, the US, Australia. So it's growing like at a really slow pace, and it's perfect for us because this is sort of a legacy project for Jonathan and I that sort of captures our life's work in a bottle. You know, the flavors that we've come in contact with over the years that we've developed as a way of, again, with this postcard analogy of you know, what does, what does the postcard on the palette, you know, taste like? And that's sort of what our bitters are. So that's the the very long answer to your question. I love long answers. This is radio. That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> um, the short answers make for a really choppy show. Um, that, I mean, that's great. I think, I think what you're describing is a phrase that I use all the time. Uh, you know, it takes a decade to be an overnight success. Um, and slow growth, I think, is the better growth, you know. So, uh, you know, I love your products and I carry them at Amore Margo. The new general store has a whole shelf of all your your entire oh, line. Which we love. Thank you so much. For yeah, yeah. And, and they're gorgeous and people, uh, you know, the, the, the bottles are attractive and the labels are gorgeous. So people pick them up all the time. I know that's sort of Damon's aspect of stuff. The, the very um, design element really draws mm. people in. Um, they're beautiful, beautiful labels. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Love the product. Love having it. Um, what made you decide to even go into that? Uh, you know, uh, what, what made you say, Hey, Jonathan, this sounds like a great idea. We're going to rent this tiny space that we can only be in from <laughs> three to 7am. And we're going to, we're going to make a product that we sell by the drop, um, which is, you know, not a, not a speedy way to sell anything. What made you like, you know, I'm very, I'm always interested to hear bitters makers and why they decided to do it in the first place. It seems like such an uphill road. Oh God, it has to start even earlier than that. So <laughs> when, when I was uh, bartending in Toronto from probably the year 2000 until 2007, when I moved to Vancouver, I was focused almost primarily on wine. So I, I, I knew spirits and, and, you know, bartending of course, back then was, was different. I mean, the odds of you making a cocktail outside of maybe a highball or like a, a classic again with a martini or something else was, you know, few and far between you'd be pouring more pints or, you know, pouring uh, wine or learning more about wine. So that's primarily what I was doing. And I was working in some pretty epic restaurants in Toronto and working with really great 
uh, psalms and wine directors and amazing chefs. And so I focused most of my career at that point on trying to find ways of working as like a, a cook or a chef um, and a sommelier, but not being trapped behind the closed doors in a kitchen. I never found that, unfortunately. So I we we ended up doing a lot of uh, you know food stuff, uh, which we'll get to in in a second, Jonathan and I. But when I moved to Vancouver, it was because I wanted to be part of where I thought the bar scene was going. And as you very well know, in the U.S., you know Seattle and Portland, there were there was so much happening at that time on the West Coast. And specifically in Seattle, what uh, Murray Stenson was doing at uh, Zigzag was really, um, really penetrating what we were doing in Vancouver because it, it was really close to one another. So bartenders on the weekends, we used to go to Seattle and pick up uh, the Amaro and like different things that we couldn't get in Vancouver, including green and yellow chartreuse and Luxardo Maraschino liqueur. It's like mind blowing. Wow. Um We'd bring that back to Vancouver, but it was on the condition that we would bring down Havana Club and Jaffard liqueurs. <laughs> so there was like this little, so there was like this little, little trade route. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was like this little trade route, and so the the bars in Vancouver that were sort of part of this, uh, you know, I guess family of, of people going back and forth to Seattle, um, started really focusing on their cocktail programs, probably and definitely before anyone else in Canada. So Vancouver had. Some of the best chefs in Canada had, you know, the 100-mile diet produce 24-7, 365 days of the year. And it was a very small market. So every drink that you served, every guest that you were connected with, every farmer that came in the back door not wearing shoes to drop off the greens for the day, like they were all part of this really tight unit so you could be innovative and you could kind of go out of left field because the, the, the guests that were coming into the bar came to Vancouver specifically because they wanted something new that perhaps they had been exposed to in New York or London or somewhere else. So it was really, it was an amazing time in Vancouver back then. And then we had the Olympics. So it just put a huge spotlight on Vancouver in 2010. Um, but before that, we were still struggling to get some of the ingredients that, you know, our U.S. brothers and sisters had behind their bars. And it was really challenging to sort of keep up with our own education, learning classics and really developing our bar programs because we didn't have access. So um, other than Agostura, we didn't have access to Peychaud. We had access to the entire Fee Brothers line um, as uh, because it was non-alcoholic and sold by, by food distributors. So there was, there was a big opportunity for, I guess, for me having an interest in both food and wine, being a sommelier, and then also being, you know, a, a lover of, of all things, classic cocktail history and just, um, and the guest experience, I, I wanted to bring it all together to develop things that could really be almost like a signature of this is what, you know, Canadian flavors could be without the addition of maple syrup, poutine, and whatever else you think Canada is all about. <laughs> um, <laughs> salmon, don't forget the salmon. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, so that was like 20, 2008, 2009. I was, uh, 2010, I was running a a bar program in Vancouver, which at the time they didn't call them bar programs. It was, I'm the bar manager. So I do inventory and administration 90% of the time and 10% is creative unless I want to work 24 seven. And actually it was, uh, there was an article that uh, Paul Clark at Imbibe wrote about uh, Vancouver 
because of the you know, lead up to the Olympics. And it was, you know, like a, a 10 page spread in the middle of Invibe magazine called Team Canada. And it featured many bartenders that I know, but it also featured my bar and featured me as the way that I was working with flavors and ingredients at uh, the bar was called the refinery um, was really interesting. And so I just, we were making bitters at that time, just, you know, again, in the mason jars in, in the refinery. And it was a huge success. It was nothing that we had thought we would ever commercialize. And then in 2010, I met Jonathan. He came in with another chef friend of his, uh, Peter Zambri that works uh, in Victoria. He's a legendary chef in, in Canada. They came in because they had heard about the bitters program. And for them, they were like, they drank wine, they drank Oban, and they drank vodka soda. <laughs> like that was that was their thing. Uh, so they came in and they wanted to try all the different flavors and things that that I'd been working on, vermouths, um, like almost um, uh, sherry-like wines that we were oxidating and trying to create our own floor. Like just super weird and geeky stuff that we were trying to do. Um, and, uh, but you were trying to do it because you didn't have any access to it, right? We didn't. We didn't have access, and also because we didn't even have sherry. Like you could buy a bottle of Tio Pepe, but you couldn't buy anything else, really. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was a super challenging, but also an amazing challenge to have as a young bartender. And I think from from that moment, you know, Jonathan and, and Peter, they thought that the style was very culinary in its nature, and Jonathan. Um, he, he was super crushing on me anyway. So I found out and, um, uh, <laughs> and, uh, the only thing, the, the, the thing that was funny though, is he, you know, he's, he's five foot seven and I'm six foot one. So it was the only thing he didn't capture in the photos when he was like stalking my photos on Facebook that, oh my God, I think she might actually be, you know, really tall. <laughs> so he showed up and he's like, you know, look, I'm doing the, the action right now as I'm sitting at my, my laptop, he would like look up in the air. Hi, Lord. And I'm like, hello, Jonathan. So, uh, you know, <laughs> there was, uh, there was this instant, um, connection. And then, uh, we, we started dating almost right away. And six months later, we opened our first company, which is called Kayla Nori, which was our boutique catering and events company. Because Jonathan's background is a professional chef, and he's worked in, and lived all over the world. But most notably, he was he was creating all of the the innovative and, and relatively avant-garde cuisine that was uh, part of the Olympics in Vancouver, Torino, and Beijing at the BC Canada House, and they were serving like hundreds of thousands of people with, you know, hundreds of events happening at the same time. So it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Um, so we opened that and then we would cook together and then we would also, you know, do these long 42 person harvest table dinners that were all paired with cocktails and bring in guest bartenders and guest chefs to work with Jonathan. So it was a really fun time. And then about a year later, um, and as, as Souther, you definitely know, and I'm not sure, Damon and Greg, if you have a background in cooking at all, but um, it is backbreaking. So it's always trying to, to think of ways that we can commercialize maybe another part of what we do um, as a way to eventually get out of the kitchen. Um, so I was running multiple bar programs. Jonathan was had lots of clients, but it was still really backbreaking, um, you know, physical labor for him. Uh, working in the kitchen. Uh, he's also, you know, 10 years older than me. So he's, he's turning 47 next year. Uh, so for him, he's had a, a long and amazing career, but um, it, it does start to, to wear you out. So the bitters was the first choice for us. We, we tested 
Uh, we sort of rebuilt all the flavors so they would be designed from both the palate of a bartender sommelier as well as a chef, and then streamline the recipes and the production from Jonathan's uh, background, and then really make a product that we could, you know, grow very slowly, but with flavors that were astronomically different than anything that was on the market, yet still approachable and whimsical and, and imaginative that people could use them and it could augment a really simple drink. Um, so that, that was why we went into making bitters in the first place. And, you know, I would say beyond our wildest dreams where we are today. Uh, but it's, it's been an incredible process uh, to get here. Wow. I've always said that, you know, like for a lot of people who want to be in the bar industry or even in the, the, the food beverage industry, any part of it, like, you don't have to be a, a chef or a bartender to be involved in it. You know, there like there are a lot of ways to be in the industry without doing the thing, you know, the first thing that you think of, which is cooking or making drinks, you know, it's or, or waiting tables. You know, there's a lot of ways to do things and be involved in, in the industry that doesn't involve that directly, which is really cool because, you know, that there's it just means that there's a lot of opportunities, you know, like making bitters. That's something that, you know, we know lots of journalists, you know, who work in the industry, but, you know, they're, they've never been bartenders, people who make bitters that, you know, don't necessarily work. It's just, it's a really fascinating industry to be in. And it's cool that you have the opportunity to do that and something you got to do together, especially. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We feel really lucky. Yeah, like the tag team entrepreneurial uh, spirit is is like really beneficial to to any project. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Diageo. You have a fancy title with them. Uh, you are the global cocktailian. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So in uh, in 2015, I competed in World Class Canada, and. I, I ended up winning that and it was so much fun. It was, uh, it was like bringing every aspect of what you expect a bartender to work on, like the complete bartender. So for everyone, it's totally different. And for me, it was bringing the culinary, the wine, the bitters, the, you know, the, uh, I guess the, the comedic aspect and also the acting, it just brought everything into the, into the forefront. Um, and then, uh, I ended up, uh, going to South Africa and competing. And, you know, the big joke about that was that when they announced that I won in Chicago for world-class Canada, um, I was so excited. And then I just stopped and my, like, you couldn't see that my face dropped, but in my head, my internal monologue was, Oh my God, I'm getting married like the same day. So Jonathan and I were getting (laughs) married the day before I was meant to leave to go to South Africa and South Africa is not close. It takes 36 right. hours to get there from Vancouver. Um, so the joke was, is that I, you know, I got married and then went on a honeymoon with a man who wasn't my husband. Um, but in fact, uh, my coach for four class. <laughs> so, um, so I was there and uh, it was, uh, it was challenging. It was invigorating. It was really, really cool. You know, I was competing alongside, you know, 53 other bartenders from 53 countries and, um, I didn't win by placed in the, in the top 12, but I realized that being there, the win is actually maybe what people strive for, but it's, 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 it's not the real takeaway from that. It's um, you're in an audition with a very small chunk of global personalities that might consider you for something else down the road. 
And so I think that was the the beginning of that process. And over the next year, I was uh, consulting on the World Class Canada program to help develop that into a, a more robust uh, training, education, and um, and competition uh, for the local market. And um, I just sent a note to uh, you know to a friend of mine and said I'm interested in doing a global role. And they said, Really? We never thought because of bitter sling and whatever else. Um, but if you're interested in doing contract work, you know, there's a huge position that we've only just started, you know, figuring out and it's the global cocktailian. And I said, can we change the name? <laughs> um, and they said, and they said, no. Uh, and, and I'm actually glad, you know, in a way that we stuck with it because while the initial shock of announcing, you know, uh, what, what did the spirit business say? They said, Diageo unveils the first ever global cocktailian position as if it was something that like existed in elsewhere in the world, but it didn't, it was so specific just, just to Diageo. So it was, it was, uh, it was really cool. And the, the position itself is meant to be, you know, a a Merlin esque, almost like magical, quite whimsical position that covers off education, trade advocacy, and development for bartenders, mentorship of brand ambassadors that work around the world with our company. So that's 160 ambassadors across 60 countries, um, but also represents and creates a conversation always around world-class mentorship, world-class education, um, you know, drinking better, not more. So always like influencing, um, you know, the messages that are that are the most important to the platform, moderation and drinking, uh, you know, food and beverage occasions, you know, diversity and inclusion. There's so many things that are wrapped into that and how each brand in the Diageo reserve portfolio plus Maltz and Johnny Walker, how it can bring their own identity to life in that. And I get to play the the role in helping to develop that and also helping to bring those uh, those conversations into the public forum. So it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge position and it has changed dramatically year after year, just based on where we want to take it. But the most important thing is that people are at the heart of the program, whether it's, you know, bartenders or ambassadors, or even, you know, our guests coming to sit at the bar or buying bottles. Um, but it's, it, it's been an amazing opportunity to build out where we do see gaps in education and mentorship, um, and how we can, you know, loop in Diageo Bar Academy and Learning for Life, just other programs that we currently hold that develop uh, bartenders or or people that are interested in joining the industry at any level, whether they have experience or not. And so it's um it's it's a pretty amazing role, and I feel really really lucky to still be in it and to still drive where it goes and what we say. Yeah, and I feel like the Bar Academy part of it is really, you know, you know exploded during this crisis time of the pandemic when people had maybe a lot of extra time on their hands to sit around in front of their computers and log in. Do you, do you find that to be true or? Yeah, we developed a, a program maybe 10 business days after the pandemic, like shut down everything in, in March in Europe. And 10 business days later, we launched a new global uh, program called uh, World Class Community Week, which we launched in I would say in 12 countries. I mean, every every country had the option of running it, but uh, we would build out a, a schedule of uh, different seminars, panel discussions, uh, anything that bartenders were interested in learning that would help them to almost develop new streams potentially of income during the pandemic or uh, potentially take their mind off, you know, something that was really 
you know, upsetting to them and put them into something more, you know, inspirational. So we involved lots of great professionals from around the world that were, were honestly uh, really excited to, to commit their time and, you know, just, just to be part of building that platform. And it's still going now. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to see what it, not just we, we were doing and, and what I've been helping to, to do, but I think for other countries or sorry, not other countries, other companies and other individuals in the industry have also taken the opportunity to just see where they can, you know, flex their creativity and where they see opportunities to help people. And that's, that's the more, more important thing. I think digital will just always be part of what we do. So I don't think it stops if the world, you know, starts to come back to a little bit of what it was before. I think it just becomes part of it. It becomes the hybrid world. Yeah, absolutely. It's just another tool that we have at our disposal now. Mm -hmm. um, well, Lauren, this has been an incredible chat with you. Uh, the hour has flown by. Um, so I need to, uh, we, we have to unfortunately kind of start wrapping up. What, how can people follow along or get in touch with you if they need to about Bittered Sling, about World Class, about Diageo? Um, where, where can people find you? Well, um, I live on Instagram. I shouldn't admit that, but I'm admitting that. So <laughs> if, uh, if, if, if you want to send me a, a message, maybe you heard something on the show that you want to learn more information about, you can, you can get me on Instagram at Lauren Moat. Um, if you want to learn more about Bittered Sling, we would love that at Bittered underscore Sling. And then all, always about, you know, Diageo Bar Academy and World Class. These are really important programs and would love to give you more information. Um, I, at World Class or at Diageo Bar AC. But honestly, if you just remember my name, you can just send me a message and I can direct you. Would love to chat with anyone. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. As, as someone else who lives on Instagram, I'll, I'll see you there. In fact, I think <laughs> right before the show, I got a follow from uh, Lauren Moat at Bittered Sling. So there you go. Yeah, as we were all talking, it's like, okay, clap if your your backup is going. And I was like clapping and like following and clicking everyone's thing at the same time. And yeah. <laughs> you truly um, live on Instagram. Yeah. It's honestly it's been it's been an honor to to be on your show today. And you know, Souther, I love, love, love what you do. And I love, you know, the way you're so incredibly honest with how you see the world as well. And you share that on Instagram. I think that's really powerful and that's what people need to see and hear, not just in the industry, but I think in the world at large. So, um, you know, I think, I think it's pretty awesome. So this podcast is obviously a testament to that. It's just furthering those conversations. So thank you. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Lauren. Um, Jets, you have anything more? Um, just want to say, uh, keep, 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 the lights on Waffle House. <laughs> <laughs> Damon we're, and Greg, we're counting on you out there, yeah. man. Damon and Greg, it was it was really nice to meet you, and I hope all of us Likewise. and the Heritage Radio crew, we can all go out and have eggs and waffles. Yeah, let's <laughs> do it one day. Let's do it. Exactly. Uh, uh, Damon, you want to take us out? Yep, that's it for the Speakeasy this week. Check out Heritage Radio Network for many more programs like this one. Check out Lauren Moat. She's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, check out Better Sling. I'm sure like your distributions, I, I've seen it in many, many places I've been. Uh, if, if not uh, at your local mercantile, uh, you can find them on their website and check it out. Pick them up and put them in your cocktail. Uh, everyone, thanks again for being here and until next week cheers cheers everybody cheers everyone thank you so you don't shun the devil with your rock the speakeasy is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you 
for our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.